Well, welcome to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible for our second full-length episode as we are going to be discussing the second week of reading in our chronological uh, Bible reading plan. We're reading a, a plan that helps us to read the Bible in a year. And one of the questions that's been brought up is, is why are we using the chronological version, which doesn't just read straight from Genesis through to Revelation, but has um, interruptions and even some, some divergences from the order of the, the books of the Bible. For example, after Genesis, we'll read Job. Um, and the reason that we did it, and you'll notice that First Chronicles is kind of interspersed through our Genesis readings. The reason for that is because this is a, a unique way of reading the Bible. We tend to forget that the Bible is telling a story and that this story has a, a clear chronology or a pretty clear chronology. And one of the things that reading a chronological version helps us to do is to kind of set that in our mind of when things happened and in what order. And it helps the story to make a little better sense than it may make in a, just a straight through reading of the Bible. So I'm not saying it's a better way to do it. I'm saying it's a good way to do it. And I do think it's valuable to do at least once. Calvary is taking this challenge to read the Bible in a year together. And this podcast is going along with those readings, hoping to enrich that reading process. And when we, when you say chronological, so there's kind of two senses and I'm not, I don't think, I don't know if I'm clear on which it is. So there's chronological in terms of like within the narrative of the Bible, mm -hmm. like when things are happening, but then there's chronological in the sense of when the books of the Bible were themselves written. It's the and former, so, not the latter. Okay. So we're kind of reading in the kind of internal timeline yes. when these things happen. Because if we were doing like a, when these books were actually written, then maybe Job would actually be first. Because yes. it seems like Job is... May have is been written before written the Pentateuch. Before and Chronicles would not be interspersed at the beginning. It would be at the end. Right. Because it, it was written. The end. Why isn't the Bible just laid out that way? <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, or actually very fortunately, God did not construct the Bible in a way that people in our time and our culture would consider convenient for one particular part of understanding it. It's a richer and deeper thing than that. And so it is a story, a very big story that we are invited into. And part of the fun is in recognizing that it doesn't read um, the way we often expect it to. And I, I think that's a good thing. Is the order of the books in our Bible part of what we would consider the inspiration of scripture? Oh, that's a very good question. Like, does the order come from God? I think the order is pretty much the same in all major groups, Bibles across Christendom. There are groups that have different books added that, that the Protestant Bible that we read do not have. But I think the order is the same. Do I think that God's hand is present in that? I would say yes, but I'm, I don't think we're talking about inspiration in the same way we're talking about the reliability of when Paul wrote a letter, we can be sure that he's saying things that God wants him to say. Um, the, the community of the Holy Spirit put these books together very carefully and very intentionally. Um, but for a long time, they were not all put together. They were read individually as people had access to them. And, and I think that that process of inspiration would be, of, of the actual putting the books together, would be different. Um, it was the, the church and community discussing things together. And there are bits that, you know, early on, there were parts of whatever now in, in John that were questioned, should this be in John? Should it be elsewhere? There were certain books that people were unsure where they should go. 
um, in the order of the New Testament. Um, but I, I think that, yes, I can say we have the Bible that God wants us to have in the order he wants us to have it. So the Jewish Bible is in a different order. It is. So does that mean that their order is not from God? <laughs> um, I I think Well, because that... it should be, and, and not a lot of, I think, church people would know that not that they ever would know you know yeah. but just that yeah the jewish bibles if you, we went to a synagogue right now their old testament is in a slightly well, different sure order like i that. love the idea of chronicles being at the end of the old testament rather than where we put it in our protestant mm-hmm. bible it was very carefully thought through when it was put there and the reason it was put there is because the events generally line up with first samuels through second kings right and the well second samuel really through through second kings i think that that is beneficial in some ways it helps us to have those stories next each other. I could see value in it being differently. Um, I don't think we'd be harmed if some parts of our Bible were in a different order. Yeah, I think Chronicles is an interesting case. And it's interesting to think about like an alternate. I mean, there are no alternate universes. But if there was one where the Christian church kept the Jewish ordering, and so Chronicles came at the end of the, the whole Testament canon, it's just interesting to think about like, you know, because Chronicles is the overlooked stepchild of the Old Testament, right? <laughs> sure. Why is sure. this... Because and part why is this where it is? Because as soon as you're done reading through Kings, it all starts over again. You're yeah. like, why is it repeating? Well, Whereas like, if yeah. you went through all of the wisdom books and the prophets and then came back to Chronicles, I imagine that the reading experience would be mm-hmm. well. And so I think we could say that, and this might be something that someone has never even thought about, that there is meaning behind why the books are in the sequence they are. Yeah. For both the Christian and the Jewish communities, we can learn from both. I mean, we're Christian, so we should probably preference the Christian order. But that doesn't mean that we can't know and mm-hmm. learn from and the Jewish from. order. And just to be aware of that, that yeah. like there are reasons why these books are in the order that they are. Not that that is uh, sacrosanct and shouldn't be changed. Otherwise, we wouldn't be reading the Bible reading plan we're doing because right. it's hopping around. And, you know, so that's all good. Read it however you want to read it. Read it back to front if you want you know, but just Ooh, that, that would be interesting. Uh, maybe if we started new Christians back to front, that would Ooh. be an interesting. Uh, you know, <laughs> if Revelation was your first, oh my gosh. Your first thing. <laughs> I did have a guy who was interested in learning about the Bible and he'd, he'd had some Christian education as a child, but he, as an adult or a teen, had never really spent any time at church or anything. And he wanted to learn about the Bible and he wanted to do it through the book of Revelation. Uh-huh. And I really said, maybe we should pick a gospel. And he said, no, I really want to do the book of Revelation. So we met um, we met five times and tackled a chapter every time. And after Revelation 5, he was done. And I was like, I told you. <laughs> like, like he was this done is... with the faith? No, he was uh, done with, <clears throat> I never heard from him again. And so I don't know I if Revelation 5 was just too much. Again. But I mean, that's a big... Four and five, like, to a person who's brand new to the Bible, when you get to Revelation, that's a crazy part to start. I, he might have been bodily assumed to heaven. He might have been. What happened? (laughs) Okay, well, uh, I think we have some listener questions to get through. So uh, it struck me while reading Genesis 1 that the first command God gives to his creation is in chapter 1, verse 22, and it isn't to humans. We tend to be very human-centric in our faith, but Yahweh seems to care about his whole creation. We know the angels rebelled. Can animals disobey or rebel too? 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, so this is verse 22, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So that's the verse that yeah. our person is referencing. And so the the first, like <clears throat> taking the question a little bit out of order, can animals disobey the the mandate of God too? In other words, can animals sin? Um, I think the animals I mean, are affected by sin, yeah, right? The, fall the short is, answer would be no. Right. As far I mean, as far as we know, right. the short answer is no. I have two can. dogs. They they will even disobey. You know, they'll break rules, but they're not sinning. They do not have the uh, the same relationship to God that we do, and the, the expectations are different. They're not made in his image as we are. They're not image bearers. And so, no, I don't think that the, the creatures are sinning. But I do think it's a really interesting reason why the, the be fruitful and multiply command is given there mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, I think that well, gosh, so he talks about the sea creatures, and in the ancient world, there was this idea that the sea was this kind of chaotic place, mm-hmm. and there were these terrible monsters, monsters in it, which is true. There are, there are, monsters, there are monsters in the, in the yeah. waters, and the, but a lot of them were, were, people were afraid of these things and thought that they were sort of outside of the, the chain of command of, mm-hmm. of, of the gods, or might be gods unto gods themselves. themselves. Right. Like Dagon, the Philistine mm-hmm. god, was a fish god. Absolutely. And so the the idea that God actually created and commanded these creatures is very important because it's right. saying that God has power and authority even over the chaotic right. creatures in the water. They're part of the plan. But also, and I think that this is this is something that's interesting. This is something I took from you a few years ago, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, and it wasn't in relation to this verse, but I think the idea is sound. Um, humans are not supposed to have a dramatically harmful impact on the world around us. We're Correct. supposed to be caring, overseeing, ruling over with it as representatives of God. And so since the command of the creatures is to be fruitful and increase in number, there is, I think, a command there for us also to, <laughs> to not let them be fruitful to, and yes, increase in number. To not hunt them to extinction. I think that uh, when we are ridding the world of its creatures, we are working against God's command. Yeah. And so, yes, is that a very anthropocentric or like human-centered way of reading? It is, but the book was written to us. Humans are part of nature, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, and part of the modern, I think part of the issue that we should take with the modern environmentalist movement is this idea that humans are not part of the natural system. Sure. That it would be better if we weren't here. That's not the answer. We are creatures of this planet you know, created alongside all these other things. And so we are part of the fabric of these ecosystems. We are one of the only creatures that knows that, <laughs> as far as we know, and and can affect all of the Earth's ecosystems at an industrial scale that, you know, apes or whales or ants just can't do because right. they don't have the capability. <laughs> and I'm not trying to out myself as like a hippy-dippy tree-hugger person, although... Well, I shouldn't say I am. I'm not in terms of like humans are bad and we shouldn't have electricity and things like that. But just that I think that this is the sort of thing that should give us pause. You know, when God grants Adam and Eve or just the human beings at the end of Genesis chapter one, uh, the authority over the planet, that that's not an authority to do whatever we want. It's to cultivate what is good. 
And frankly, part of what puzzles me a little bit about people's attitude sometimes is if we kill everything and if we fry the soil, what do you all think we're going to be eating? (laughs) Sure. So like what's bad for wildlife is ultimately what's bad for us. So So the the second, well, I think there were two parts of this. Uh, Oh, no, there's three parts of this. So the second part of this question is, how does God's big plan of the gospel apply to all of creation, not just the human parts? Mm -hmm. Well, that there's no such distinction. Like, we are just part of the creation. Yes, it is for the creation. And you can see this throughout the Bible. I mean, Psalm 8, many of the Psalms. But I think even in Paul's comments in Romans chapter 8, that our redemption as the children of God is the redemption of the creation. Right. Now, we don't know exactly how all those details will work out. But that we, as the priestly rulers of the earth, for us to be reclaimed by God's kingdom means that what we rule, meaning this planetary sphere and evidently also the angelic sphere, since Paul talks about us judging angels, you know, but just that that means the redemption of the cosmos through us, principally through Jesus, but Jesus is one of us. There's a fancy word for that. It's called apokatastasis. Oh boy. And it's the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox idea that all of creation is being redeemed. And I think we miss that sometimes. We think that the gospel is just about humans going to heaven. But the Bible tells a story of a new heaven and a new earth, all of creation being redeemed. The earliest stories of Genesis present God as changing his mind, seeming to not know things, and having to react to human actions. Uh Uh-huh. How do we square that sort of language with the generally accepted doctrine oh, of God? That's an exciting question. That's yeah. a good. That's a good thing to talk about. So the place where this usually comes up, actually, I mean, this is true. It's present here. We see this with God coming, walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and calling for Adam and Eve. Right? Um, he goes to Abel or to Cain, and he says, mm-hmm. "Where's your brother?" Where's your you brother? know that. Yeah. Um, but the the story that the, that's kind of quintessential for this is the golden calf story in Exodus. Um, it's Exodus chapter 32, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's where it is. So so God, the, the Israelites have created the golden calf. God has told Moses, who's up receiving the Ten Commandments, he tells Moses what, what the people have done. And he says, "These uh, I've seen these people, they're stiff-necked people, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses says, like, God, how could you do that? Then people are going to say you just brought them out of Egypt to, to destroy them. And and then it says in, in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord re- relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And that word relent means he was he regretted or he was sorry. Yeah, repented, repented is an older translation yeah. of it. And so the, the idea is God changed, right? And so we have this question of, is, is Moses actually changing God's mind? And I think the answer is no. Um, but what God does for our sake is he presents himself to us in a way that's dynamic. Uh, so our relationship with him is dynamic. And so he presents a, a he presents himself to us in a way that includes like changing so that our relationship with him is has a sense of, of that dyna- dynamism that comes from our relationships with people. He does that for our benefit. So I would say that the Lord knew exactly what Moses was going to say in Exodus, said what he said in order to give Moses the opportunity to say what he said for Moses' sake. I would say that when the Lord comes to the garden and he asks Cain where his brother is, he knows exactly what's happened. 
He's giving Cain an opportunity to come clean and repent. When he created Adam and Eve, he already knew what was going to happen from that. These aren't surprises to him. But he presents a profile to us that includes change or, or, or the ability for that so that we can be benefited in our relationship with him. I don't necessarily disagree. I think that I, and let me, I guess let me just maybe put this in a context for just a Ben context. Sure. Like part of why I kind of went through my, not an atheist phase, but really just an anti-God phase as an early teen was precisely for this reason of kind of coming to the conclusion of like, well, if God knew what Adam and Eve were going to do, why didn't he stop them? Or like, why didn't he do something so that they wouldn't, you know, yada, yada, yada. And the conclusion that I came to was that he knew that we would glorify him more if he saved us from sin than if we had just kind of lived with him. I hated that. Yeah, I and like so that. I rejected, you know, it was like, ah, this is not for me. I, I feel like that's akin to what you're saying. It's like that he's like, Oh, I'm gonna no. I'm gonna do this so that you're benefited, but really I know what's going on the entire time. So I think part of and I, I, I and so I'm not saying I disagree. I think I'm saying this is something I still am thinking about kind of processing that I think we want to be careful that the Bible we want to take what the how the Bible's presenting the Lord as a, the first word, right? So yes. we bring assumptions yes. to the text. Like for instance, the assumption that we know what the word all-knowing means, we don't because we're not. And so it's like whatever it means it includes the things that the Bible is witnessing to in how Yahweh interacts and, and treats with us. Again, I'm not denying that God doesn't know everything. I'm just saying I don't know what it means to know everything. And so for God to, for instance, you know, oh, well, now we have to kick the humans out of the Garden of Eden because what if they eat of the fruit? It's like, well, what? why is this almighty creator having to do any of this? I don't know. It, Genesis is just telling us that this is what he did. And I, I think there's an invitation there to grapple with these questions. And I don't know if we can come to a, a neat answer necessarily, but just that that we have to be careful about the assumptions that we're bringing about what we think God is, right? And saying, well, the Bible's not fitting my picture of what God is. And I'm not saying you're saying that, but just that we that needs to be the other way around, that the Bible informs our assumptions about what God is you know, Absolutely. or how God treats well, with us. Well, we have, we have to square with God clearly knowing the future. We have to square with God never changing and God relenting. Those things have to have to square. They have to go together. Well, but I'm saying it may not be possible for us to square them. Sure. And it's probably bigger than, than what I'm describing. But like, it's the same idea. You know, I pray for rain because I need it to rain. And the next day it rains. Did God answer my prayer? I would say that that my prayer is part of what what's going on there. At the same time, if I were to do my research, I might find that the weather pattern that created the rain started forming a week ago. Um, God wasn't surprised by my prayer. He began answering it before I prayed it. Does that mean that God didn't actually respond to it? That that's not what that means at all. It's God is so big, and when He relates to us, He has to make Himself relatable. To us, and one of the things we need because of how small but I think we that, are, that are... relatability is real. Like it's. Oh not, yeah, absolutely, not, it's real. Well, he's not putting on a front to teach us a lesson. Like I think he would have killed all the Israelites if Moses hadn't interceded. Because, like, let me let me put it this way: the repentance is real. Not that God was going to do evil, but the relenting, I think, is real. Sure. If if Moses had not said what he said, would God have gone through with what he said he was going to do? Yes. 
did God know that Moses was going to say what he said? Yes. Like, I, I don't think he was surprised by Moses's words. Sure, but I think that we're... And I'm not disagreeing with you. I just think that that's a jump that the text doesn't make. Like, it's not like there's a side comment that's like, by the way, readers, God knew the whole time what was going to... You know what I mean? Like, that's just sure. not how it's presented within the text itself. It's just like, God was going to do this. An intercessor stepped forward, changed his mind, and so he didn't. Like, that's how it was presented. We can make theological thoughts about that, and I'm not saying that's... Again, I'm not saying I disagree with you, just that that is what's happening. Like, we're right. making theological thoughts about sure. what the text is presenting. Absolutely. Um, we can talk more. I'm sure people that, may have questions based on what we've said, and we may Well, because it comes up. I mean, this is one of the things that the scriptures grapple with, sure. I think, the whole time. Yeah. What does it mean and for us to actually relate to this God? What does it mean? And, you know, and I think it's, it's good to ask questions, even if there isn't a good answer. And it's okay to keep asking the question, even though you know there's not a good answer. Sure. <laughs> Well, you keep struggling. Because I think wrestling. that is, again, that's reflected within the scripture itself, is that this keeps coming up as as a keeps coming up, is how do we yeah. understand, you know, and it's connected to the problem of evil, why does God let bad things happen to good people, sure. yeah, you know, all of that. There's not always going to be clear answers. And like we talked about last time, the Bible isn't, the Bible isn't so concerned with facts that there are many things it just doesn't tell us because it wants us to be formed into a certain type of person. Not necessarily to think all these certain thoughts. Sure. I mean, those things are connected, but it's not just about or principally about information into our brains. It's about the formation of our whole person. Sure. So next week we're reading Genesis chapters 25 through 39 and First Chronicles chapter 1 verse 32 to chapter 2 verse 8, which are the names that go along with the stories. What a good summary. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I try. I do what I can. These chapters continue the story of God's covenant family through the exploits of Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, and end as Joseph gets thrown into an Egyptian prison. I want to point out a few of the major themes that animate these stories and give you some things to be watching for as you read. And this is a prepared statement. I'm not saying all this off the top of my head, just to be clear. <laughs> I'd be more impressed if you were. <laughs> oh, me too. First and foremost, these stories are about family. Family politics, marriage, childbearing, sibling rivalry, spousal jealousy, inheritance, and vengeance are all on display. The covenant family of Yahweh is just like all the other families on earth. And this may cause us to wonder, why did God choose these people? And I think these stories reiterate that Yahweh's choice has nothing to do with their righteousness or their ability or their power, but rests entirely on his faithfulness to his world. It makes sense that... Yahweh would choose a family just like other families because that's the only sort of family that exists. The second theme is that the personal sets the stage for the political. So pay attention as you read because there's going to be a lot of place names and explanations for why these places are named that. Uh, and also pay attention to when particular individuals are identified as the founder of a tribe or nation. Genesis is setting the stage for the later conflicts and challenges of the Israelite kingdom by explaining how all these things got started because brothers or next-door neighbors mistreated each other. And with this, we see that Yahweh repeatedly promises to bless the nations every time he, well not maybe not every time, but as he renews the covenant with successive generations of the family, included in that is this idea that he's going to bless the nations. And I think it's important to 
remember that the nations that would have been on their minds would have been their immediate neighbors, Moab, Edom, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, uh, the same neighbors with which they'd had all this trouble and these different issues. And so these tales of personal political conflict are preparing ground both so that we understand the lineage of the later wars fought by David and Solomon and so on and so on, but also to sharpen our ears for the promises of blessing uh, to all the human family. The third theme is that of land, and I said that in all caps, if you couldn't tell. Yahweh promised Abraham and Sarah not only a people, but a homeland for that people. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel move in and out and around the promised land throughout these stories. And so much of Yahweh's blessing is tied to the goodness of the land. We see this in Isaac's blessing of his boys and Abraham sending his sons by Keturah away from the land so they will not squeeze Isaac out of his inheritance. And I think we're meant to see the promised land as a redo of the Garden of Eden. There are clues throughout the text that this promised land is special and supernatural. Angelic beings often meet the chosen family as they enter or leave, uh, which reminds us of the cherubim guarding the gate of Eden. The Jordan Valley is compared to the Garden of God in last week's reading when Abraham and Lot are deciding to separate. Esau who is red, just like the red clay from which Adam is fashioned, smells like good, fertile topsoil to Isaac. So I think all this just tells us this special Eden land will be the home of God's covenant and the source of blessing to the nations. And that's why this territory is so important, is because it's, it's meant to be viewed as kind of the second coming of the Garden of Eden itself. The fourth theme is trickery or deceit. These stories are a carnival of lies, tricks, costume changes, and people not knowing who other people are. And this culminates theologically with the mystery man ambushing Jacob for a midnight wrestle in Genesis 32, who potentially is Yahweh himself, or an angel, or some rabbinic interpreters actually think it was Esau who showed up in the middle of the night to beat the crap out of Jacob. (laughs) I love that. I personally think it was Yahweh, but I do love the idea that it's actually Esau. (laughs) (laughs) This fight and then Esau's subsequent gestures of peace the next morning caused Jacob to remark that seeing Esau is like seeing the face of Yahweh. Very important uh, comment in Genesis 33. There are many layers to this comment, but I read it to mean that Jacob has at last encountered truth himself in his encounter with the, the mystery man and will put his deceit away. And Jacob really does stop the lies and the trickery after that point. The rest of the family, however, does not. And we'll continue (laughs) to talk about that. The last thing that I want to highlight is less a theme and more, I think, just something we have to grapple with and confront in these stories. And throughout these stories, we are forced to reckon with the abuse and mistreatment of women. Uh, So we're reminded of Sarah's abuse of Hagar towards the beginning. Isaac leaves Rebecca out to dry when they sojourn in Philistine territory. Women are repeatedly taken advantage of, used as pawns in a game as the different characters try to outmaneuver each other. We see this with Esau marrying his cousin Mahalat uh, just because his parents were displeased with his Hittite women. So he marries a third just to try and make everybody happy. Laban obviously uses Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah use their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. Jacob places the female servants and their sons at the front of the caravan to potentially face the brunt of Esau's attack. Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped. Uh, That's kind of the culmination of this theme in these stories. And our hearts should recoil. Like, these are not supposed to be happy things, 
And I don't think we should try and kid ourselves into thinking, like, I'm supposed to find something uplifting in the story of Dinah being raped. No, it's just bad. It's bad from the beginning to the end. And I think we're meant to take a step back and go, this is awful. I don't want this sort of thing to happen. I think the Bible says, yes, that's what we want. We want to form men and women who have a firm resolve to protect everyone, obviously, but to protect uh, women in our lives uh, from this sort of treatment and that our respect for them would be strengthened. And these stories also highlight the agency and resourcefulness of many of these same women. They can't culturally make the same moves as men, and so they have to get creative and take matters into their own hands. And we see this principally with Tamar, the Canaanite great-grandmother of Jesus, whose story is told in Genesis 38. And Tamar is the first woman credited as righteous in the scriptures. You mentioned the kind of second coming of the Garden of Eden being the promised land. Yeah. Why would there be a second coming and not just a return to the Garden of Eden? Do you think the promised land is where the Garden of Eden was? I personally do think that. Okay. Yeah. I think that Jerusalem is the mountain that Eden was on. So the cherubim are no longer keeping people out. That's true. Not in the same way. Although in a little while there will be cherubim on the holy mountain again. Yeah. To keep people out of the holy of holies in the temple. Just because I think we tend to spiritualize things so much that we forget that like all of this one really happened and then two is actually tied to actual real estate that folks are still disputing and fighting over to this day. The underpinnings here are as actual land, like we're going to get on a plane next November and fly to this land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, And that this land is special in a way that, I think special in a way that other land isn't, but that God wants it to be. Like, I think that where Christians can sometimes get a little askew with promised land stuff is like, oh, it's all about Israel, 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 and Israel's great. I think we see, and the Psalms reflect this, and Paul reflects this, that the the ultimate intention is for the entire planet to become, quote-unquote, promised land, for the entire planet to become Eden. So it starts there. That's very important. It starts in a real place, just like it starts with a real family. But then it grows, or it's meant Mm -hmm. to grow. Um, How are we supposed to take the patriarchs? So they're, they're, I mean, they're kind of held up as um, paragons uh, in the, the story of the Bible, and Often we think just very positively about them, but there's also all these like stories of misbehavior. You know, Abraham at some point claims Sarah is his his yeah, sister twice. rather than his wife. Yes, mm-hmm. and Isaac has some misbehavior, a lot like his father. Jacob is, I mean, his very name means trickster or liar. Right. Like when we read these stories of the patriarchs, how should we be thinking of them? Are they good examples for us to follow? Are they just ordinary people just like us? Was there something different about them? I think they're examples of how we are. (laughs) Certainly some of those things to avoid. Certainly some of those things to strive towards. But like they're just, they're reflections of real people. And again, it's not pure history. It's not just giving us facts. It's, it's setting these things within a story, within stories. And these stories are meant to do something to the listener, hmm. right? Not just reporting facts, but actually forming us. And so, yeah, I think we, we take them as, I don't want to say heroes of the faith, because that's not what they are. I think examples is a good word. Examples is a good word. This is Abraham as an example of what it means to walk with Yahweh. There will be days when you fail miserably and you allow gross injustice to occur to other people. There will be days where you listen and you obey. And Mm -hmm. those are real. And at the end of the day, 
it's Yahweh's gracious choice and power, period. Like, it's not about what Abraham does or doesn't do in terms of like, oh, God picked him because he was so good. He's not, and God didn't. We don't know why he picked Abraham. He just did. Like, it just happens. That I think that there's a sense of, yeah, that they are like everyone else, which should give us some hope. God is at work in the messiness of our lives. Uh, and I think just confidence that our failures are not the thing that God is. Or our failures do not determine God's love towards us. What, uh, what do you think the blessing to the nations is? Because it doesn't really ever say. It just says, through your family, the nations will be blessed. You know, I, I think that in their minds, in the ancient Middle Eastern mind, blessing probably would have meant like a certain range of things. Mm-hmm. You know, And in the same way, n- not totally separate from what we think of when we think, you know, blessed. You know, both in the shallow sense of money and stuff and health. And that is part of it. But I think as well a deeper concern for shalom, for wholeness, for peace in a big sense. Theologically, we would say the restoration of Eden, both in terms of, you know, our relationship with the creator, our relationship with one another, our relationship with ourselves and with the created world. I don't know if they would have put it exactly in those terms, but like good harvests, lots of flocks, all of that, that's restoration of Eden language. Mm -hmm. It's not purely, I get a bunch of stuff. You know, but just that the 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 world is made whole, sure. Um, and humans humans can be fruitful and multiply, and the creatures can be fruitful and multiply, and everybody's happy. I mean, I think that's that's this idea of blessing, and so it, that ties back into the promised land is where the blessing begins, but it is what's always meant to reach outward and expand to the rest of the world, to the rest of the nations. It's interesting that you answered that question, and I'm not saying you you exclude him from it at all. But I think most people would say blessing equals Jesus, right? Mm. What do you? How do you think Jesus plays into that blessing to the nations? Well, I think Jesus is the human that restores Eden mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah, he's the vehicle. I just really felt like we should not answer that question without uh, referring to our Lord, because well, he's definitely a part of it. And honestly, why I, why I didn't I just, is because the Old Testament doesn't. I mean, the true. Old Testament doesn't for obvious reasons, you know, bring Jesus into it. What did you bring for us to talk about today? Do you have a guess as to what I brought for us to talk about? Uh, Because I think this will be fun to see which one of us finally actually gets it right. Do you want to talk about Jacob wrestling the angel? Really? Yeah, that's what I brought. That's That's what I brought. I did refer to that earlier. That's true. I felt like I gave you you a hint. You did. Yeah. Yeah. So Genesis chapter 32 is where I want us to be today. Uh, to talk about. And there is no way we're going to exhaust this, but uh, there's some really neat things. So the story, as Pastor Ben has already referred to, is is one that's well known. Jacob, whose name means trickster, it actually, his name literally means to like grasp by the heel. The idea is that he let his brother do the work on the way out of the womb and just kind of mm-hmm. rode his co- his coattails. Um, and he he knows that he's blessed. He was He was preferred in the womb over his older brother, doing nothing to deserve that. And he sort of lives his life trying to make the blessing that has been promised happen, right? By tricking and swindling. And so um, here he is having left Laban where um, a whole lot of work and effort and life was spent and a whole lot of trickery was done both by him and to him. And we find that Jacob has been able to tackle every problem he's encountered 
with his wits. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's set himself against people and come out on right. top and again he's and again and again. Yeah. But he's coming up on a problem he can't get out of. His, he's bringing all that he's accumulated back and he has to see his brother again. His brother whose birthright he tricked him out of. And he expects his brother to be furious. I mean, which is all of this stuff. Right. Like, it's not some hippy-dippy idea. That no, you, it's like, like literal it's this stuff. physical stuff that he's all bringing back, uh-huh. like that he stole from Esau. And so he, he sets it all in front of him because he's hoping, I don't think, and I don't think we're supposed to think, but maybe we are, that the thought is like, they'll take the brunt of Esau's attack, but more that he'll be calmed by these, like their mm. offerings, right? He'll He's, he's sating Esau's anger by mm. putting gifts in front before Esau has to see Jacob. And then eventually he's by himself and he has this, this experience where uh, a man, and it's so cool reading the story because you could miss it if you're not paying really close attention. It, it reads with Jacob worrying, you know, he sets up these, these gifts to encounter Esau. He sends everyone away. And then verse 24, so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Like, what a sentence that is. That's a crazy sentence. And then it says, when the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And so um, what we end up having is this, this name change. Jacob keeps going by Jacob, but Israel, this, this contending wrestling with God is something that has characterized Jacob and it characterizes his people. But in the midst of the wrestling comes also this blessing, this incredible blessing. But the story kind of ends with Jacob being changed. You know, his, his hip is torn out of socket so that he's, he's limping and he has to be limping when he faces his brother. Like his body is not going to be on his side in this confrontation with Esau. But another change happens. Jacob greets Esau before everybody else does. So he sent them ahead. But then after this encounter, he Mm -hmm. goes and he meets Esau first. Mm -hmm. So he is changed by it. Um, Realizing that he can't think or trick his way out of the situation. Or bribe. Or bribe his way out of the situation. He humbles himself and relies on the Lord. And so he's come to the end of himself and chooses to rely on God in the midst of it. Mm. And there's just so much here that's so neat and interesting. Um, and I just thought it'd be fun if we kind of talked about it. So do you, you said you think that it is Yahweh that he wrestles with. I think so, but I think that there is enough ambiguity that, you know, I'm at peace when other people draw different conclusions. Okay. I'm pretty convinced it's Yahweh. I don't know that the story makes a whole lot of sense otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a supernatural power to this person. He's able right. to touch the hip. He's able to rename him. Right. Um, and the renaming seems to actually relate to the event that happened mm-hmm. all night. Um, this is a, a person who clearly is powerful and um, could overcome Jacob. If he can touch his hip and knock it out of socket. He mm-hmm. could beat him in a wrestling match, but he didn't. And so that's another question. If the the supernatural being was capable of just beating Jacob, why, why didn't, didn't he? <laughs> I think I would come back with, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. Mm-hmm. So the text says he can't overpower him. We're making an inference to say he actually, no, but seriously, are, are we not? I think if you can touch a man in a wrestling match, so so I have a history in martial arts. If I have the ability to touch you and knock something out of socket, I am capable of beating you. 
Um, I may not be able to beat you by making you give up. I may not be able to exhaust you. Um, but I don't think we're left wondering whether or not the man was actually capable of physically overcoming and harming Jacob. I, I mean, do you think the story's trying to leave that ambiguous? I mean, I think it is. Interesting, because I really don't. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's being said about Jacob here is that he's just got, I mean, he is willing to go for broke, you know, and this has been his whole life. He's put right. himself against people and never lost. And so he's, he's on a human level, unbeatable. And yet. I think it's important to also just think about that Jacob doesn't let him go until he's blessed. Mm-hmm. So like he ripped his hip out of socket and Jacob still didn't let him go. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like the hip socket thing was the, like the KO move of like, oh, then Jacob fell to the ground and Yahweh ran away. It's like he, <laughs> he wrenched his hip out of socket and Jacob's like, nope, you're, you're going to bless me before I let you go. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it's like, there is a lot of ambiguity in the story. Sure. Well, you do believe that the man is Yahweh. Sure. Okay. Do you think Yahweh can beat Jacob in a wrestling match? I mean, I would think so, but Genesis 32 says that the man saw he could not overpower him. Interesting. So what I've always taken that to be to mean, again, is a reference to Jacob's tenacity. And it could not, be. Not yeah. a, a full statement in Yahweh's inability to beat us in a wrestling match. Well, I mean, he's not wrestling us. He's wrestling Jacob. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> well, and Jacob's supernatural strength has been alluded to before. It's like he lifts the gigantic stone lid off the well, mm-hmm. you know, for Laban's flocks by sure. himself, you know, and... And so I think that there, yeah, you're right that there's the sense of like Jacob is physically very strong. Well, what I, what I love about this is that Jacob has changed afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my question is, why is he changed? Mm-hmm. It seems like the wrestling has brought, and, and has brought about change in mm-hmm. him. And so what are we supposed to take from that? I think is the, the thing that I find so fascinating about this story. Well, and it could also be that Jacob doesn't actually realize what, who it is until his hip is ripped out of a socket, you know, it could be just because the guy touches it and, you know, and then it's like, Jacob's like, Oh, this is God <laughs> or at least a spiritual being, you know? Cause again, I think there is some ambiguity there, but yeah, I don't know. It's like Jacob realizes because of that, the physical overpowering that mm-hmm. he senses he has, something he has run into something that he cannot overcome. Mm-hmm who is the God that he has met at Bethel, you know, the God that he knew through his family, the God that has blessed him with Laban. I think that somehow in encountering something, an obstacle that he cannot move, humbles him. Sure. Maybe. I mean, again, that... I think it would be know, pretty humbling. <laughs> that's, and of course, the text doesn't spell everything out. That's the fun, that's the fun of it, sure. right? Sure. Well, and but it's yeah, fun I mean, to imagine, there's, there's you know, a, there's I, a humbling. the picture I have of this is that Jacob has sent everything over. He's laying down a picture of his head on a stone as he's mm. just stressing out over this encounter he has with Esau coming tomorrow. And then this person just approaches. Shows up. And, and you wonder, like, him. was anything said? <laughs> you know, yeah. and the, but Jacob just gets up and apparently feels like he has to wrestle this man. And it's till daybreak. Mm-hmm. So a wrestling match that's hours long right. is, I cannot express to you the thorough physical exhaustion <laughs> yeah, that would come true. from something like that. That's true. And here he is, he's, he's, his hip is touched, and so he grabs hold, he clutches him, mm-hmm. and he, he asks for blessing. And there's just so much that's here. I mean, there, and it's hard to know what the bottom of the well is, what we can draw from this. We are, I think, blessed by when we wrestle with God, when we struggle, when we read these stories 
and things don't make sense to us, and we go to God and say, hey, I don't like this, that wrestling with God produces spiritual growth. When we grab hold of God and refuse to let go, blessing is what usually comes from that. Um, there's, there's so much here that I think is, a, this picture is wonderful for a picture that is a, a metaphor for what reading the Bible is supposed to be like mm. and the transformation and growth and blessing that comes from it. Because if, if you're reading the Bible and not wrestling with God, I think either you are just so much holier than me or... or which, you, is, which is possible. Very possible. Or, or you have missed some things that are really important because I think that we are forced to wrestle. And that wrestling, in my, in my experience, produces positive results. Mm-hmm. We do tend to think sometimes in our culture that when we wrestle with God, when we come up with some sort of objection or question that we're supposed to not ask anyone, not tell anyone, and we just let it go. And hopefully it goes away on its own or it doesn't become a problem. Um, and, and sometimes then that question sort of gets infected and it becomes doubt and we find ourselves pulling away from the faith. But what a story like this one tells me is actually we're supposed to engage, grab hold of the question. Uh, the Yahweh is not afraid of it mm-hmm. and he will wrestle with us to the end of ourselves. And what we'll find if we do that is on the other end of it, we will be grown and stretched and know him better. Mm-hmm. Jacob going to meet Esau first right after this story mm-hmm is a inescapable promise in my mind that wrestling with Yahweh produces positive results. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's a echo, echo prefiguring of kind of a death and resurrection here, right? That just that, I mean, what all this fruit is born out of a very negative experience. He's attacked in the night, physically exhausted, is permanently maimed. Oh, yeah. And then he comes out like this. And so again, for us, that God may come in in forms that we don't recognize and it will feel like we have been attacked. Yeah. Wow. And that's wow. very yeah. hard to grapple with when it actually happens to you. Well, and what Jacob is left with is a body that he cannot count on to solve right. all his problems. Like he's anymore. blessed, but God permanently messed him up. Well, the blessing... <laughs> like the na- he's going to limp for the rest of his life because of this encounter. The name change is, is seen as the blessing, but the limp is also a blessing. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's broken by it, but the the guarantee that he cannot rely on himself mm-hmm. to accomplish his whatever his goals are removes that temptation from the from the table and it seems to be a temptation he's struggled with in the past um but yeah i think i think you're right that yahweh can come to us and that can feel like an attack Mm -hmm. we don't like that we like to blame the devil for all the things well and frankly not just feel like an attack it is is. oh yeah oh (laughs) yeah he attacked jacob (laughs) like let's not mince words yeah and uh this is the last comment i'll make on this i think as well just thinking again about the personal becomes the political sets the stage for the political that jacob's renaming as israel is obviously very significant for him but then like that is this is sort of the founding i mean these are all the founding stories of israel but like this is how israel got its name as a people you know that they are the people who strive or who wrestle with with god with yahweh and so i think that's just this is a very important hinge point i think in the formation of the nation itself mm-hmm. you know looking back and be like why are we called israel because once upon a time our ancestor wrestled with god and we've been wrestling with him and ever we've since. been wrestling with him ever since <laughs> and that's why we don't eat this one part of the lamb <laughs> <laughs> is it's a reminder yeah 
Um, Derek Kidner, who's one of my favorite commentators in his Genesis commentary, he says this. So talking about Jacob and all of Jacob's abilities, his, his exceptional abilities are the reason why he's been able to put himself against mm-hmm. other people and win over and over and over again. Um, and God doesn't want to take that exceptional tenacity and mind away from him. Mm-hmm. He wants it applied differently. And so mm-hmm. Derek Kidner says, Yahweh would have all of Jacob's will to win, to attain and obtain, yet purged of self-sufficiency and redirected to the proper object of man's love, God himself. It's a it's a moment where Jacob is taken from a self-focus and moved to a God-focus, and we see the fruit of that immediately. And what I think happens a lot of times, at least in our culture, at least in, in my life, is there can be this tendency to rely on ourselves and to to see our lives as the story of us accomplishing things on our own. But the fruit and the benefit that comes from us letting that go and seeing our lives, living our lives, as dedicated towards a different end, God himself, I don't think there's a limit to, to how fruitful and beneficial that can be. Well, I think this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.